Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, I want to welcome Dr. Dale Johnson to the podcast. Dr. Johnson serves as director of counseling programs and associate professor of biblical counseling at Midwestern Seminary. He's also an accomplished author and counselor, and he also serves as president of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. He also has a new book out entitled The Church as a Culture of Care. Dr. Johnson, welcome to Preaching and Preachers. Dr. Allen, it's always great to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be in the studio today. You're on sabbatical yes. this semester, and so you are in sabbatical attire, yes. uh, even as you're with me in the studio today. That's right. And so uh, good to have you on campus for this conversation. And uh, occasion by your recently released book, The Church as a Culture of Care, Finding Hope in Biblical Community. So listen, before we get into the conversation today, which is being built from the book, and uh, the topic of the podcast is The Church as a Culture of Care, Give us a sense of what's new with you guys, uh, the Johnson family, ACBC, and uh, any other ministry writing projects before you. Yeah, ACBC is doing well. We're so grateful for the way the Lord is uh, growing the organization itself in terms of training centers and uh, and individuals being certified as, as a family. And the Lord is really blessing us. We're in a sweet season of life. and uh, You have a graduate. We have a graduate coming up. So that's that's quite different. We're, we're in preparatory mode to, to send him off. And uh, but that's really exciting. And uh, our, our twin girls, who are our youngest, uh, turned seven not long ago. And so that's, that's a new season as well. We're, we're just enjoying a sweet season of ministry uh, here in Kansas City. And how sabbatical treating you? Sabbatical's going well. We're we're catching up on a lot of uh, things that you tend to get behind on, and um, yeah, direction is is headed uh, as far as writing is concerned. In a couple ways. One one project that I'm working on is is um, sort of a an addition to this book, The Culture of Care, where I I, I want to flesh out. If churches want to start a counseling ministry, how do they do that? So it's a practical work describing some of the ins and outs, even uh, legal preparations that you have to think through, how to set it up well, that sort of thing, uh, the types of people that you need, and, and and just functionally and practically how a counseling ministry should be run under the auspice of a local church. That's one. Uh, and then I'm, I'm turning my, my heart and mind in the direction of this issue of conversion therapy, which has become a hot topic uh, in, in terms of sexuality, um, transitioning, uh, gender fluidity, gender dysphoria, uh, and talking about that from a biblical perspective, I think the church is going to be, um, you know, under fire as we talk about these issues in the future. And the counseling room is sort of one of the tips of the spear um, for this discussion. And I think we need to be uh, well prepared. So I'm, I'm doing some research in that area, and uh, we'll be writing some things a little bit later this year. And uh, just just to make sure our, our listeners understand or are aware, ACBC, uh, which you preside over, is located on our campus and here in Kansas City at Midwestern Seminary. So it's good to have you guys here in the synergy that we get to uh, share between respective ministries and the overlap of respective ministries. And uh, just to acknowledge again, even this conversation, that our programs here at Midwestern Seminary Spurgeon College are all specifically committed to biblical counseling. And uh, your leadership there has been really, really essential, Dr. Johnson. Appreciate that. Yeah, we've, ACBC's really enjoyed being here uh, and the benefit of, of the school itself. And then to see our programs, the way that they're flourishing God is really blessing the work that's going on here uh, and the students that we're putting out that, that we're going to see as beneficial to the church um, as we are for the church. And we're, we're seeing students come out who have that heart, who have that mind uh, to serve the local church. 
So the church as a culture of care, let's talk about your book for a moment or two. And again, as we would uh, segue here shortly into just the topic in general, uh, what prompted the book? Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, for me is seeing the church distance itself to some degree from this responsibility of caring for the souls of people. Um, when you think about secular counseling, there, there's even with some of the, the language that's used in secular counseling, there's a stigmatization that happens uh, with diagnosing an individual. And as that happens, the church has found themselves over a century or so distancing themselves from individuals like that, not because you know they want to increase the stigma, but just because they don't know what to do when someone's diagnosed you know, with a clinical diagnosis. And so that, that was one occasion. The second occasion is, is you have uh, those who are from the persuasion of an integration perspective, which is uh, inclusive of secular psychological theory, wanting to mix that with conservative theology. Um, they always critique biblical counseling saying, well, you know, the Bible doesn't give a, a methodology. And part of what I'm trying to do is to show that God does give a methodology. He doesn't put it in the categories that we would want it in the modern sense, where we want it to fit nice, nice and neat categories of behavioral science. But he gives us a, a methodology, and the methodology is called the church, in the way in which the church is called to function. Every facet, every function of the local church is intended to care for the souls of people. So that last sentence, mm-hmm. I want you to flesh out that uh, the church and its functions and ministries were intended to care for the souls of people. Flesh out what you mean by that, and then perhaps put that uh, in not just biblical, but but perhaps historical context. Yeah, so let, let's start in describing the, the, the functions. In, in order for us to have a good context for the functions, the things that the church is called to do, we have to understand the church in terms of its essence. Uh, the church in terms of its essence, that we are blood-bought people. We have been set apart, um, those who are called of God, those who are children of God. And in that description of who we are, we have been given certain tasks. And, and out of that essence of who we are as a, a blood-bought people, uh, we have been called to do certain things under the institution of the church that God has set aside. And all of those functions, so if we were to talk about evangelism, for example, uh, that is me sharing the gospel light of Christ with those who are in a dark world. That in and of itself is soul care, if we see, as, as Peter would describe it, that someone comes out of darkness into marvelous light. That is a, an essential aspect of caring for the souls of people. One of the ways that I say that is, uh, how much do you have to hate someone not to share the gospel with them? Mm. So to love them, to care for them well, to tell them the truth in love of what God um, uh, what God says about them in terms of his gospel and the hope that they have, that is caring for their soul. And, and then we move into some of the functions like, for example, discipleship. Discipleship in and of itself is us growing, Colossians 1.28, that we proclaim him and admonishing every man and teaching every man so that we may become complete in Christ. And the goal is that we we grow in in expression of who we are in Christ, that we we think more like him, we act more like him, we love more like him, we forgive more like him. And all of that is a process at which that preparation is caring for my soul um, in, in preaching of the word. What the pastor is doing on a Sunday 
it's, it's not a group therapy session, but what he's doing is he's he's proclaiming the word, and the word is doing a work by the Holy Spirit on the souls of people in terms of conviction, edification, growing, encouragement, and, and all of that is a process of caring for the souls of individuals. And then you think of something as as uh, as the function of church discipline. Well, we don't like to talk about that. That's a negative thing. Well, in reality, the idea is that it's a restorative act of the church for those who are in trouble, who find themselves in sin, who who have not been repentant up to this point. And so church discipline really becomes a restorative act to care for the soul of a, a person. We see the guy, and uh, Paul talks about 1 Corinthians 5, and then we see uh, the church enacts discipline, and we see in 2 Corinthians 1 and 2, they re- they receive him back as his, his restoration. So all of the functions of the church that we see are intended to be ministries of the Word, whether public or private, to care for the souls of individuals. So give us a sense as to kind of historical trends. And I know you touch on some of these things in your book, but uh, would not assume at all that our listeners have, have read the book or even familiar with these broader subjects. Um, as far as kind of the adopted ministry model in the year 2022, and again, this is a, a big generic statement, right? Every church is different. Every ministry model is different. But but the general comfortability these days and in the modern er- ministerial era, let's say, of just kind of routinely referring people outside of the body of Christ for any and and all sometimes kind of counseling services and needs. Give us a sense as to even how kind of that has developed throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century. What made that kind of normal and like what you see currently kind of on the landscape in that regard? All right. So let, let's start. Uh, I'll describe a, a pinnacle moment uh, in in the life of not just the church, but really in in secular terms of counseling and therapy and that sort of thing, in the middle of the 20th century, so we're talking 1976 to 79, you had a rapid increase in uh, in licensure and then in in diagnostics of uh, mental issues or mental disorders. Um, that was something that that was not around. The the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders uh, came into being in 1952 and was not widely used until really uh, 1980. And so this is something that that uh, was not really readily available. But but in in mine and your time, this has been such a common language of diagnosing and and mental disorders and that sort of thing that that we really don't know any different. So if we if we go back to the early part of the 20th century, really. The, the latter last decade or so of 1890-ish, um, we begin to see a transition. And, and this is around, you know, a, a part of the advent of, of Darwinian thinking, which led to Freudian thinking and so on. And that began to impact particularly our context in the Western world uh, in the first decade of the 20th century. Um, let's bring that away from the secular world and into the, the, the Christian, religious, evangelical world. Uh, you begin to see uh, the the same context that that breeds this language of the adoption of psychology as a science. And the first book that was written in uh, the psychology of religion uh, was in 1899, and it began to flourish in Christian education broadly, and it was adopted by liberals in the early part of the 20th century. Now let's bring that closer into where we are in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, it's really important for us to consider this. E.Y. Mullins takes over in 1899 after the Witsit controversy, and then we see in the first part of the 20th century, um, he he has a direction of, uh, and it's debated, but he has a direction specifically in the practical ministries where he wants to change the shape experientialism. Of, yeah, yeah, experientialism, uh, pragmatism. Essentially, he was a fan of William James, who was the father of American uh, psychology. 
And he brings in a man named Gaines Dobbins. Gaines Dobbins was an unbelievable leader. He was uh, a very good administrator, uh, and he was a really good educator. And most people don't realize that, that psychology entered the seminary s- system in Southern Baptist life at Southern Seminary in the nineteen uh, in, in the first decade of the 1900s. And it came through sociology, then later into psychology and really pedagogy, Sunday school pedagogy. Sunday school pedagogy began to replace uh, ecclesiology. And as you see, Sunday school pedagogy began to replace ecclesiology. It was based on trying to understand this new anthropology, the psychology of religion. And so how do we understand people? We want to teach them in a way so that they can grow from the inside out. And discipleship came became more about how do we meet their felt needs from a psychological perspective uh, more than we should be uh, honoring the Lord by distinct ecclesiology from the scriptures. And, and again, that didn't happen with a flip of the switch overnight. This happened over about three decades of his ministry. He ministered there for 36 years at Southern uh, Seminary. And uh, you begin to see the change in Christian education first, and then it moves into a specific department in 1947 um, called the Department of Psychology of Religion, where they began to teach and train uh, people to do, in a professional sense, uh, counseling. And that moved away from the role of the, the pastorate. The pastorate was now looked at as being an administrator primarily and a, a professional preacher, uh, no longer having the duties of the specializations like education and counseling specifically. That was uh, to be taught in the seminaries, but for those who are professionals outside. And, and notice the context. We're not to the licensure stage yet. Right. That, that came 30 years later. And so uh, that's a part of how the church really uh, became immersed in this. And, and, and all of this becomes... In fullest bloom with Wayne Oates. Oh, for sure. Wayne Oates became really uh, Dobbins' protege in 1947, hand-selected to lead this program until uh, in the 1970s. And then from Southern Seminary, every seminary was affected by the hiring and uh, whatnot of, of students and, and philosophies from that institution. And you see it, be- it just becomes common in our convention. And so, yeah, m- most pastors um, for the 20th century were, were never taught anything about uh, or, or very little, I would say, about, about private ministry of the Word in terms of uh, personal counseling and, and, and one-on-one shepherding with people. So what do you say? Let me play devil's advocate a little yeah. bit here. Um, what do you say to the pastor, the minister listening to this conversation today? And they're tracking with you. Man, mm-hmm. they, they are even self-consciously approaching Scripture in the counseling session from a biblical counseling standpoint. Um, and they're resonating with everything you're saying, but they're thinking, you know, I got a church of like 600, mm-hmm. and it's me and a couple of other guys on staff. Mm-hmm. And and I, I do want to prioritize biblical counseling and soul care, but I only got so many hours in the week. How, how do you like – what do you say to that person, and without you know shaming them in a bit more hours? <laughs> what do you say to that person as to what's an appropriate way to um, to um, what, what kind of level of personal accountability the pastor should hold oneself to? And also, secondarily, to what extent do you look at different congregations, different needs, different levels of pastoral gifting and interest? Uh, help us to think about these things. Yeah. So first of all, that's a phenomenal question, and most of the time when I talk about biblical counseling, that is one of the first questions that pastors have. Do you understand what I'm doing? Do you know how much I'm preparing for sermons? Do you know how much I'm going visiting and I'm doing all these things? How in the world can I add more onto uh, my responsibility? So the first place I like to start is in somewhere like Hebrews 13, 17, and just say, okay, the, the scriptures make clear that, that those who are under your care are to obey you as a leader, but then you are called to keep watch over their soul. So let, let's do some study. What does that mean? And then I like to say, okay, like, 
this whole responsibility is not just simply on your shoulders. You are an under-shepherd, which means Christ is the head. So how do we mimic his care as a shepherd? Uh, if we're the under-shepherds, how do we mimic his care for the flock? Because that's, that's primarily what we're called to do, not just in public ministry, but in private ministry. And then I like to move to somewhere like Ephesians 4 and say, listen, brother, you're just called to model what this looks like because all the people under your care are intended to mimic this care of Christ for one another. As Christians, we are called to mimic the way Christ cares for each other. That's all the 59 one another's in the New Testament. And so what's our responsibility? Model this, demonstrate what it looks like to care well in private ministry, but then equip people to do this work. Give them permission to do this work. Provide teaching, discipleship, training to where uh, they're, they're, they grow in knowledge and wisdom and understanding based on Romans 15, 14, where they can do this kind of work with one another. And you're multiplying yourself as opposed to uh, you being the one who has to take care of every single need. And, and then those needs, obviously, that, that get more difficult and complex come up to you from the congregation. And, and to me, that's the way, and this is a long-term goal, right? But this is the way that you you multiply your work uh, in a way that I think is is biblically appropriate. And with guys that say, who are pastors, you know, I, I'm, again, I'm with you. I mean, I appreciate even how you just framed us in this conversation. Um, you know, I kind of divide the pie. Would you encourage a pastor to divide his time pie by saying, okay, there are X amount of hours in the week or in a month that I, I, I want to give to kind of soul care slash counseling. Would you encourage that pastor to then say, okay, of those hours, I'm going to be willing to meet with X amount of people once a week, kind of indefinitely? Or would you say, I would encourage you to expand the breadth of your reach, but maybe limit the frequency or the number of, of one-on-one sessions that you do with the same person? Like, am I seeing the same person every Thursday till Jesus comes back? Or <laughs> yeah, how does right. this work? No, that, that's really good because the, the goal of uh, this type of care uh, counseling is that, that someone grows in relationship to Christ, that they're, they're being discipled. We're seeing growth happen. And so, so there should be an end. What, what I like to say is counseling care, which is, which is intentional private ministry of the word together, it, it sometimes arises when there's an acute problem. And what I'm trying to do is to help them with this acute problem, which then will allow them to be assimilated back into the body. So so whether I'm talking about a normal member working with someone, this doesn't need to be something that's indefinite. Uh, And so I would encourage the pastor, no, no, you need to set some limitations. You need to have some particular goals when you hear the the, the person and their particular need in the first session or second session. Uh, You need to have some goals and and you don't need to, you know, where they monopolize your time. You need to set some parameters and and terminating and assimilating that person back into the normal care of the body. Because this is not about a professional ministry that that makes the difference. The the private ministry is intended to be a supporting factor for the ministry of the church broadly. That's normal care in, in the church broadly. And so what you're doing is acute care. And so let's get them back into the normal function, assimilated into the into the body. So time is really flying by here, Dale, but I'm, I love the conversation. I think it's um, helpful to our listeners. Let me try to pull the conversation together this way and uh, ask you for our listeners to to maybe just kind of outline briefly what pastors can do to be better positioned to serve their flock in this regard. Yeah, I'll say this in a number of ways. And when I say some of these things, I don't mean to be offensive. I think in some ways this is how pastors have, have – uh, Kept people at arm's length in terms of trying to, to self-care in some ways. I, and I'm 100% in favor of us um, 
promoting self-care for pastors. Pastors are in the mud quite often. They're in intense, stressful, emotional situations, and it's really difficult, especially with what we've been through the last two years with, with COVID and that sort of thing, navigating the difficulties. But one of the things that I think is really important, and, and let me encourage pastors on the front end, when you engage in personal ministry of the Word, like what I'm describing, it, it increases the value of your preaching. I think you preach differently and more specific with the text in relation to application. I encourage pastors in, in a couple of ways. Number one, uh, you can always go to classes to learn how to do uh, more specific application of the Word uh, in, in specific issues of soul care. But one of the things that I would encourage pastors to do is is start in two places. The first is start taking issues that you see that are common among your people and start studying the the scriptural understanding or definition of these things like anxiety or despair or being downcast, those types of things, emotional distress. Don't dehumanize the people in scripture. Understand that they are whole beings, and they're whole beings just like we are. So when they endure some stress or difficulty, they endure the types of responses that we would have. So study Scripture specifically to understand what does God say about these types of responses that we have uh, as human beings. And then the second is listen to people. Do your best to hear from your people, to, to hear how they're processing things, take time to spend with individuals. Uh, and then I think uh, challenge yourself to be able to respond biblically, to understand their situation, uh, and then give them some sort of uh, means of hope through the Scripture. And what you're going to see is that increases your understanding of them, what they're walking through, the difficulties. And as you prepare sermons, you're going to be understanding who God is. And as you teach it expositorily, uh, you're going to be um, much more connected to your people in in how to apply those passages, uh, even from the pulpit. Yeah, I love how you connect those dots, too, because it is indeed true. And I have found it experientially, personally, that... um, when you are investing in individuals uh, directly, privately with Scripture, that does uh, not just empower your your preaching, but it does make it more uh, more relevant because you're able to draw lines from the text to your congregation better because you've been drawing those lines from the text to pe- people one-on-one better. Mm-hmm. Well, Dale, thank you so much for the conversation today. I, I do want to commend your book, again, The Church as a Culture of Care, Finding Hope in Biblical Community and uh, out with New Growth Press. So, Dale, thank you so much for joining me today on Preaching and Preachers. It's been great. Thank you, Dr. Allen. Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.